0: THE DANCE OF GODS, BOOK ONE, SPELL OF CATASTROPHE, WRITTEN AND READ BY MAYOR ALLEN BRENNER. CHAPTER 15. BIG TROUBLE. Shaw awoke. The surface upon which he was propped was irregularly heaving, another boat. His hands were manacled together on the other side of a thick post, and the post ran up through the low ceiling above his head. Frothy water splashed outside the low window at Shaw's right, glowing softly against the night, and fell back. Shaw took stock, glowering in the darkness. His chest hurt when he breathed. Various other locations around his body throbbed. His cloak and all the equipment beneath it were gone. Laddered steps led steeply downward to Shaw's deck from a hatch just forward of his post, The hatch was suddenly thrown back, introducing the face of a soldier and a hand with a sea lantern. Shaw scowled up at him. The man grimaced back and said, "'Time to say your prayers, spy.' Shaw raised an eyebrow. "'Indeed, where are we going?' A dark cloud seemed to settle down over the guard's face. "'Ask yale, he muttered, and slammed the hatch. "'Huh,' Shaw said." Maybe it was a suburb. uh uh, said a new voice, rather hoarsely, behind him. Shaw craned his gaze back over his shoulder. Another man, also manacled but to an eye-bolt at the stern of the chamber, was raising his head gingerly off the deck. Good evening, Shaw said. Choirful one, ain't you, eh? the man said. He groaned again. Didn't you hear where they're taking us? Indeed, Shaw said again. His head was woolly. He realized clearly, impairing his choice of ready vocabulary. Perhaps I lack the appropriate reference. I take it Oskin Yale is a name designed to strike fear into knowledgeable hearts. He's some kind of sorcerer, one of those eh, whatcha call 'em, worked with dead guys, necromancer. Yeah, that's the one. That's Oskanyale. The man had pulled himself up against the aft wall, his legs sprawled across the floor, and his chained arms contorted behind him. In the dim light from the open windows, caked blood could be glimpsed all along one side of his face. His clothes were little more than tatters. They had not apparently been much to start with. I knows the name. I've never met him. Not me. Not yet. But every day they comes into the cell and picks some guy and takes him out to Yale, and the guy never comes to the cell. Which cell? You are not, I take it, a political prisoner? Me, politics? Eh, ha, never touches politics, not me. What do you take me for? A thief, Shaw said. Hopefully. Nah, not me. Me, I burn down buildings. Why are you asking? This is not helpful, Shaw thought. If you were a thief, you could have picked these locks and gotten us out of here. Oh, hey, that's a good idea. Uh, you're not a... No. Yet again, the problem of extrication devolves on me, Shah thought. So what else is new? Oh, said the arsonist. Eh, so like I was telling you, every day they take some guy to Uskin Yale and we never sees him again. This time it's me, and you too. Raw material for a necromancer. What a delightful conclusion to the day. Let this be a lesson, Shah thought. The next time early retirement is offered, I should take it. Enough with these crummy adventures. The slap of the waves changed as the boat pulled up to a pier, the deck rolling more erratically as the hull responded to the reflections of water against the dock pilings. Shaw and his companion were dragged through the hatch and up a series of ladders to the street, and were hurried off, hands still chained, under ever-watchful guard. The men on the boat had handed them off to an escort that had been waiting for them at the dock. This new party was made up of a dozen or so men from the regular militia and one other man who seemed to be in overall charge. Under this man's cloak, his jacket bore the same unfamiliar device Shaw had spotted earlier in the day, the purple pretzel. Possibly it was the sign of Askanyale's own personal retainers. As near as Shaw could figure it, they were heading north and west toward the hills around the north wall. Shaw's chest was still hurting, in a dull, deep ache with sharper patches on the surface, and that was starting to worry him. The electric blasts he had taken from the tentacled, conjured thing might have done him lasting damage. Because of the nature of his curse, one of his curses, Shaw was forced to be especially protective of the structures in his chest. What he needed now was a rest cure, but that was an unattainable luxury. He would have to be very careful, and very lucky, and hope that he didn't have to deal with too much magic in the near future. The procession turned left onto an empty street that ran parallel to the north wall and just south of it. Through the overgrown shrubbery, on a vacant lot to the right, in fact, Shaw could see the massive blocks of the city wall. A rundown building came after the empty lot, and then a stone wall crowned with spikes, they approached the tall door in the wall. The man wearing the sigil of the pretzel rapped on the door. A panel in the top part slid open. Another servitor peered out. A few whispered words passed back and forth, and then the door swung heavily inward. A short path led across a narrow courtyard to an ornate stone-front building. The gate behind them closed, and then one of the large double doors to the building ahead of them rotated open, its top lintel twice Shaw's height. Yet another door, equally as tall, blocked the inner exit of a small entry hall or vestibule. Beyond the inner door the function of the building suddenly became clear. An auditorium opening ahead and to the right, its ceiling stretching the long two stories to the building's roof, had once been the worship room of a temple. It had not been a major temple as such things went, But the signs of altars and hangings and other similar apparatus were still visible as lighter shapes against the soot-worn walls. The place certainly hadn't been a house, especially considering the neighborhood. This area of the city had never been the place people went to build their mansions. The left edge of the auditorium, more of an aisle really, became an actual hallway ahead and toward the rear of the building. On its left wall were a set of smaller but equally ornate double doors, now closed but flanked on either side by pretzel-wearing guards. Another half-dozen guards were scattered around the temple. The Yale man, who had accompanied Shah's party from the waterfront, spoke to the sergeant of their guard escort. The sergeant did not seem pleased. You will remain here with the prisoners, the Yale man said, his voice rising. Do you understand? The sergeant cleared back at him rather sullenly, Shah thought. He opened his mouth to speak, bit off a word instead, wheeled and said, All right, you men, bring them into the big room. A sword jabs Shaw's back. The troop turned right and proceeded to the far wall of the former temple. Against the wall were a shiny new line of iron eye bolts driven into the stone at head-top height. Chain up the prisoners, the sergeant growled. From behind them came a sudden collective intake of breath. The double doors at the side of the aisle crashed open, the echoes booming through the large open space and the clear shocked silence. The party turned, all eyes in the room swiveling toward the doors. A new figure stood there, in a cloak so black it seemed to eat the light, dramatically framed by the lines of the doorway, an act of fire and an iron grate behind him, that etched his shape in a writhing bed of red. The hood of the cloak was thrown back, the left eye was covered by a patch of black leather stark against the paler grey of his face, but his right eye was blue and deep with a hardness like slate. The figure clasped his hands behind his back as the pretzel men from the waterfront approached him and then whispered in a low deferential murmur. Against the intense hush, the only other sound was the soft crackle of the fire. The pretzel man gestured across the room at the guard troop, then specifically indicated Shah. The one-eyed gaze of the dark figure focused on Shah. Shah grew cold and felt like his will was flowing out onto the bare floor and back across the temple. It was not his imagination. The dark figure was projecting some leech-like force. The pretzelman, who was perhaps more of a chamberlain, said something else. The figure nodded, and the two of them approached. The members of the guard began to sidle unobtrusively away. The chamberlain, who was lagging discreetly behind his boss, snapped out, "'Stay where you are! Hold them securely!' Then the dark figure put his arm out, palm down, and the chamberlain shut up with an abrupt rattle in his voice. The figure spoke. His voice was like the dull clang of a cold gong. "'You are the one called Shaw? Could that be Dr. Shaw?' The famous ZALZEIN Shah? Acting on instinct, his conscious faculties in collapse as the room swam in his eyes, Shah said, Indeed, yes, have we met? Another mass inhalation of breath swept around the room. The Chamberlain leapt forward, roughly elbowing a guard trooper out of the way, and smashed his hand as hard as he could against the side of Shah's head. Shah let his head and body rock to the opposite side and back, absorbing the blow but keeping his feet. The pain was still deep and sharp, but served to partially clear his head. The chamberlain drew his hand around for another swipe. "'Forbear,' said the figure. "'Yes, master.' The chamberlain shrunk back, glaring ominously and somewhat petulantly at Shaw. Toadies, the figure said to Shaw in a more conversational tone. "'I look for responsible assistants, viceroys, aides, and all I find are toadies.' "'Sycophancy is sadly a pervasive problem,' Shaw agreed, the pall of stupefaction beginning to lift. "'I take it you are Askanyale. "'Indeed,' said the voice like doom. The man who burned down buildings let out a high shrieking wail, dropped to his knees, paused there, and then fell deliberately over on his face. Asken Yale had turned to watch, displaying a look of some bemusement, Shaw thought. Now he turned back. I also take it, Shaw said, with more of his usual sardonic drawl, that you are really the one running things around here, which things naturally include the activities of Carr, though less than totally competent. An apt turn of phrase, said Oscar Yale. Thank you. The Chamberlain could no longer contain himself. He flung himself at Shaw, yelling, Shut up, you, you and your snivelling mouth! No one talks to Oscar Yale in that Taux Please excuse me. Shah told the suddenly prostrate chamberlain, removing his foot from his midsection. He straightened up and gave a pleasant bow in the direction of Asken Yale, restrained somewhat by the pull of the chains around his arms. My apologies, Mr. Yale. Toadies, as you said. Asken Yale clasped his hands again behind his back. His expression remained grave, without a hint of amusement. Clearly a tough audience. I have heard reports of your activities in the past. Perhaps these accounts were in error. Are you then merely a jester, sporting with the goodwill of those more powerful than yourself? I think of it rather as a question of attitude, Shah said. Ultimately, if one dies, one dies. If one lives, one lives. As long as one lives, one may adopt a certain attitude toward things. I prefer that which you see. Asken Yale eyed Shah. I can see that you have the potential of being thoroughly insufferable to have around. Still, if word of mouth is accurate, you have your uses and your capabilities. This unfortunate affair at Kar's palace, which I will most likely have to handle myself, is it all your fault? I wouldn't go quite that far, Shah said. Yet, in all honesty, I must claim some responsibility.' The fact that Askin Yale hadn't rushed right off to the palace to manage things, though, raised a couple of possibilities in Shah's mind. Either things weren't that serious there, or indeed already under control, or Askin Yale didn't really care that much what happened to his puppet, Kar. If that was the case, he might have decided that Kar had already served his peace. Perhaps Yale felt it was time for him to take charge of roosing Uvaya in a more personal and visible form. On the other hand, he might have other, more substantial problems to worry about at the moment. Hmm. Hmm, said Oskanyale musingly, then you couldn't have been the one at Lakes. He stared up at the ceiling. Indeed, this is a personage with a lot on his mind, Shaw thought, and one with his own set of complexities. Shaw was willing to bet he wasn't a simple necromancer, but what else could he be? He radiated like a god, but he certainly didn't project the personality of one. Gods were usually more decisive, more forceful, more impressed with their own attitude of arrogant superiority. And who was Lake? As usual, Shah thought sardonically, it looks like I've wandered into somebody else's ongoing plot. Asken Yale looked back down. Why are you here, Shaw? Why are you here, in Rusigulvaya, at this particular stage of events? I am here, in Rusigulvaya, because I had to leave Dressed Clover in some haste and decided to head east, Shah said. I am standing here with you largely because of a curse and my own unfortunately theatrical personality. What chance has there been of manipulation? Shah had been asking himself the same question. There had been no particular reason for a coup in dressed clover at that specific time. Some of his luck, one way or the other, could also have been stage-managed. I try to resist the concept of predestination, he said. Still, like everyone else, I am always open to the possibility, although I'm sure you know how difficult it is to tell. Quite so. Do you have companions? I do indeed. Which ones are around at the moment is, I regret, something you may have to find out for yourself. Be still, Asken Yale said to his suddenly restive troops. The members of the guard escort who were in Shah's line of sight had the expressions of those making longer and longer lists of other things they had to do and other places they had to be. He is mine to deal with as I wish. Asken Yale stretched out his arm, pointing at Shah with a middle finger that bore a gold ring, alive with tiny lights and dark vortices of force the full emotive power that had first hit Shaw across the room, again building. Shaw he thundered, my patience ebbs. I will grant you a choice. You know this choice. You will join me or face a terrible doom. So it's a quick ally he's looking for, eh? Shaw thought weakly, under the renewed onslaught. Whether I've got friends around at the moment or not, he said aloud, his voice less rickety than the rest of him felt, and loaded, in fact, with his most ominous air of serious menace, if I get hit with that terrible a doom, they'll come after you. For every one you inflict on me, you will receive back ten. A terrible doom for me will yield you a ruin of such appalling devastation as to pale the sane imagination. How's that, Buster? he thought. Their eyes were locked, shaws two, with Askanyale's crushing one. Askenyale moved his outstretched arm around to the side, aiming it now at the man who burned down buildings, who was still quivering on the floor. See the merest hint of your doom, Askenyale said. The man on the floor froze in mid-quiver. It was as if he had been set upon by a taxidermist between one breath and the next. A black gauze seemed to flow over his body. Then from the gate in the wall outside came a sudden pounding, a hollow rolling boom. Askin Yale, an expression of extreme irritation on his face, looked down at his prostrate chamberlain. The chamberlain sprang to his feet and dashed across the auditorium to the outside door. Shah noted with dim satisfaction that the man was holding his side and running with a lurch rather than a steady stride. He disappeared through the door, then quickly returned, now wringing his hands. "'Oh, master,' he said in a low mumble, barely audible to Shah, a man outside, with a staff. He demands to see you. Someone from Kar, said Askenyale. No, he uh, He says his name is Gasha something. Gashala Rahara. Gashana, Gashana Tantra. Yes, master, that was it. Askenyale lowered his arm, his mouth pursed, his eyebrow raised, lost for a moment in rumination. So he has come. I will see him. said thoughtfully. The chamberlain took off again toward the door. Askin Yale started to stride after him, then paused, sparing a glance over his shoulder, first at Shaw and then at the guard sergeant. Fasten them to the wall, he said to the sergeant. I will be back. He stalked through the double doors at the side of the hall and vanished from sight. The door to the vestibule swung open again, and the chamberlain reappeared, leading a new man, dark-haired and of medium height several inches shorter than Shaw, wearing a dark-gray leather outfit that looked considerably the worse for recent wear. The man was also hefting a polished hardwood walking stick. The chamberlain indicated the double door, the man sauntered in, and the guards at either side swung the doors closed. Shaw let the soldiers drag him back against the wall and rattle the chains. He was thinking earnestly. Could that man be Gashana Tantra? THE Gashana Tantra? Not Gashana Tantra the Devious, surely not the mad plotter himself? But indeed, how many Gashana Tantras could there be? And certainly no one in their right mind would knowingly impersonate Gashana Tantra, Gashana Tantra of all possible entities. If I was looking for yet another doom, Shaw thought, that one would assuredly be quite low on my list. Gods, fa! This was really much more up Max's line. If we were around, he would surely understand what was going on. They were taking their time in there. Shaw cast his eyes around the room. Above the double doors at the far end of the temple, cantilevered out over the aisle and supported at the free edge by three small pillars, was another room with three large open windows overlooking the auditorium space. As Shaw glanced up at it, a shape flickered in back of one of the windows, just at the corner as if someone had taken a quick peek out of the temple below. A new complicating factor? Well, at this point, it probably couldn't hurt. The temple held no other features of immediate interest. Under the circumstances, escape was looking like a good idea, but with all the guards around and the manacles on his hands now holding him to the wall, simple escape would be difficult. He did have an ace in the hole. Unfortunately, the ace was booby-trapped, courtesy of his ever-popular curse. And with the treatment he'd already received, it was liable to leave him in much worse shape than if he'd merely tried to roll with events. Shaw looked around, hoping for new inspiration. "'What's that?' one of the guardsmen said suddenly. "'A faint shriek, a clatter, a rapid sparking, snapping tsk sound, a blinding flash of white light from the windows of the mezzanine room. "'My eyes!' somebody wailed close by. After images began to fade, images returning to their normal colors after the sudden white for black and black for white, but then from the upper windows came more lights, multicolored lights, expanding spheres like bursting bubbles of orange and blue, another stark lightning flash. The building rattled, a giant groaning sound built, rising out of the very ground, mounting to a roar like an avalanche, like mountains being ripped from the earth. A plane of arctic cold settled down through the room, leaving behind it on the walls sheets of condensing ice as though surging ponderously into sight from a great depth. Something began to take shape in the room on the next floor, the force of its vexation slicing through the building like a flayed nerve. The mezzanine windows pulsed red, and the wall around them flew apart, the pillars buckled, the roof of the aisle cracked along its length and began to drop toward the floor, and several men around the room were thrown tumbling by fragments of smashed wall propelled like hurled cudgels by the force of the superheated gas. Shaw squinted, trying to protect his eyes. All around the auditorium, the guards and troops were crouching, covering their heads, glancing frantically around. Ripped beams and fragments of flaming floor dropped in a sudden rain. From beneath the crack in his screwed eyelids, Shaw unexpectedly caught sight of the shape of a man in the middle of the falling wreckage, cascading with the beams and fiery brands. And not just any man, but a strangely familiar figure. The figure twisted in midair and landed on one knee in a crouch, shaking its head. Another massive roar came from the floor above, from behind the remains of the mezzanine windows, amplified by the fact that most of the wall that had muffled it before was no longer there. The figure had dropped to the floor right next to a cluster of Asken Yali's troops. They started toward him, drawing their swords and trying to shield their heads at the same time. Shah was still surrounded by the soldiers of the guard, several of them now motionless or squirming on the floor, the others trying desperately to spot a way out. None of them were paying any attention to him. He lashed out with a leg. The nearest man ran into it, folding his knee backward, and lost his grip on his sword, and guard and sword fell to the floor. Shah shoved the guard away, got his foot under the sword, took aim, and kicked up. The sword arched through the air. "'Max!' he yelled over the din. The dazed figure had disappeared from sight behind the five remaining guards and their twirling swords, although the guard seemed to be having some trouble actually reaching the spot where he had been. As the sword flew overhead, an arm suddenly stuck up from the pile, neatly grabbed the hilt, and converted the sword's tumbling flight into a smoothly churning downward spiral. Arm and sword disappeared behind the guards, Shah heard the high-pitched of rapidly spinning metal within the rest of the din, the guards paused in their motions, and then, one, two, three, four, five, all of the soldiers seemed to fling and jumble themselves to the floor. It was, indeed, Shaw realized with only the barest surprise, being long accustomed to similar entrances by his friends, Maximilian, the vaguely disreputable. Max, apparently still in the same motion, was letting the momentum of the sword throw him into a twirling leap over the falling guards when a giant ball of orange flame materialized in the hole in the wall near the ceiling. The ball roiled, the skeletal beams around it bursting into flame, and then a pair of glowering eyes and a snarling mouth began to appear in red outlines against the licking glare of orange and yellow. The mouth opened. Max, still in mid-air, started to curl into a ball, hiding his head when the mouth spoke. A pressure wave of superheated air shot through with the slashes of driven flame slammed across the temple. The floor collapsed. All the furnishings in the room, the dead or injured guards, the wall hangings, and the airborne Max, blew down with the floor and were gone. Giant stones and flaming timbers flew. The walls splintered and crashed out. The scene spun, and then Shaw discovered himself sprawled in a pile of smoldering rubble, with his wrists scraped raw and his shoulders half pulled from their sockets, but the manacles on his wrists now ended in loose dangling ends of chain. The hovering creature outlined by the flames gathered itself, rearing back, beginning a dive toward the gaping hole in the floor the shock waves of its unleashed power pulsing through the air like ripples in a pond. The time for reflection was past. Shah staggered to one knee and raised his arms. Next is Chapter 16, The Den of Yale.